welcome to Sports Wise, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. On this episode, I'm joined by Jeff Mishkin, a legendary sports lawyer who is the longtime outside counsel for the NCAA and also chief legal officer of the NBA and a former partner at SCAT. Jeff joins to talk about the future of college sports and breaks down all of the antitrust threats facing the NCAA, including how much money is at stake, the NCAA's chances of success in court and in Congress, and where the NCAA goes from here. Here we go. Welcome back to the podcast, Jeff Mishkin. Thanks for coming back on. Thank you, Gabe. Good to be with you. All right. So let's jump right in. A lot to cover in this crazy, brave new world of college sports. And you had represented the NCAA for uh, quite some time in some of their antitrust issues. So you're in a unique position to talk about their antitrust defenses and the sort of past, present, future of their antitrust arguments and maybe the model for college sports. But can you set the framework a little bit by talking about the old NCAA antitrust arguments that you made for a number of years and now where we are with the sort of modern approach, if there is an approach? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll try. For a long time, the NCAA argued with a lot of success over many years that the agreements among the members of the NCAA that limited or prohibited pay to student athletes for their athletic performance and had other uh, limitations, that 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 was pro-competitive and not anti-competitive because what the NCAA was doing was creating a separate and distinct athletic product from professional sports. And that it was really the the whole purpose of the NCAA was to maintain a clear line of demarcation between collegiate sports and professional sports. And the way they did that was that athletes uh, in college would not be paid. They would have to be making progress toward uh, a degree, making real academic progress. And you had real students playing against real students. And that was different than professionals. And for a long time, the courts accepted that because of this different product that the NCAA was producing, that was pro-competitive, it was good for consumers, it gave them a choice between professional sports and collegiate sports. Now, that, that argument was premised on the contention that it mattered to consumers, that consumers cared, that there would be a distinction between professional sports and collegiate sports. And as time has gone on, uh, that premise, I think, has become uh, a bit more questionable. And do you think, so is it that the premise has become more questionable or the courts have been more willing to question the premise? Do you think things have changed where consumers 20 years ago did value athletes who weren't paid and and now they don't? Or do you think it was that the courts just themselves, the judges themselves valued it? What What do you think has changed? Has the law changed because consumers have changed or is the, the, the view of how consumers appreciate or what they value, has that changed? 
I think it may be both, but I think largely it's a question of the facts on the ground have changed. And that college sports in, in 1984, when there was the decision that, that took the NCA out of, of college football, but, but seemed to be clear that the uh, NCAA's restraints on <clears throat> payment to student athletes was not going to pose any antitrust problem. That was what seemed to be true to the courts, and I think premised on the ground that consumers did care a great deal about college athletes not being the same as professional uh, athletes. Things have changed. The amount of money that has come into college sports in the last several decades, amount of money uh, paid to coaches, paid to trainers, there's just a lot of money that has been, or at least revenue, that's been flowing in to college sports. And I think that the public perception has changed a bit, that there's a, a much greater sense of, of unfairness with all that money coming into collegiate sports and the student athletes receiving full scholarship is important and, and real compensation, but not nearly uh, what they might be getting if they were sharing in the revenue that was coming into college sports. So I do think there's been a change in consumer perception. And do you get the the sense at this point that there is no turning back or, or do the NCAA in your mind still have a valid antitrust defense, but just maybe a narrower defense than they've had in the past? What, what, and let me maybe ask it a different way. They're still facing multiple antitrust suits and there are probably more antitrust litigation. What do you expect them to argue or what do you think the courts might be willing to accept at this point as a pro-competitive benefit for their restrictions given this change in consumer perception and, and what people see as maybe the value of the traditional notions of amateurism? Now that the NCAA itself <clears throat> has proposed, at least at the upper upper tier of college football and basketball, that there be pay for play with certain restraints, but but the NCAA itself now appears to be willing to accept something much closer to a professional model at, at the top level of, of college sports. Given that, the, the traditional defense is going to be much harder to make, certainly at that level, perhaps below that level, you can make the, the same argument, but at a level where the NCA itself is accepting the idea of, of pay for play, then I think any antitrust argument based on a clear separation between professional sports and collegiate sports becomes much tougher, much tougher to make. And so two related questions to that. One is, why do you think after fighting this for many, many decades and claiming in court in all of these cases, and again, having the Supreme Court and most circuits up until six, seven years ago, agree with the NCAA that there was a distinction between college and pro sports and the athletes not being paid beyond their academic expenses was um, a legitimate line to draw. What, why do you think the NCAA president, in the face of all this litigation, makes an announcement that he thinks that these top tier schools should pay, knowing that, uh, imagine Jeff Kessler and his team are salivating over that and adding that to their complaint and adding that to, to every one of their arguments that, wait a minute, you've been saying 
that this would destroy college sports. And now you're actually proposing it, whether or not it gets voted on, whether or not it gets approved, that almost seems irrelevant at this point, that here the president of the organization himself is saying that this is something that the, the school should do. Yeah. And understandably, the plaintiff's lawyers are going to latch on to that decision. I think the uh, a very recent case within the last few months, Carter against the NCAA, focuses on, on that change. I don't know precisely what led uh, President Baker to, to make that change. I would think that it has a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier, and that is the perception uh, on the ground that, that college sports at the t- highest levels can still remain attractive, very attractive and popular to fans, to the television networks, even if the, the athletes at the very top of that, that top of that pyramid are, are getting paid. But yeah, it, it will have certainly practical consequences in the antitrust suits that are, that are now pending. So how do you, if you're defending the NCAA in-house and Oliver and Carter, <clears throat> make the argument both that they should be allowed to decide if they want to pay their athletes, at least at the top level going forward, but it was legal to restrict those payments in the past? How, how do you balance those two? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough argument. Gabe, and I'm not I'm not there to to make it or to figure out what that argument should be, but I I, uh, I I think it's pretty clear that what had been the basic argument is much much more difficult to make today. Yeah, and, and le- so let's talk mm-hmm. about some of those cases, the the House case and 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 the Carter case and other litigation, because again, you you understand this better than anybody else in the country or in the world the potential liability they're facing and the potential potential exposure they're facing. So can you just talk through the people who may not be following as closely as you sure. and I, which is probably most people, what, what the stakes are? Yeah, the stakes are very high. In the, the House case, <clears throat> that is a challenge and it seeks damages for NIL, name, image, and likeness revenue, which the NCAA several years ago permitted student athletes to, to pursue. They didn't permit the universities themselves to make those payments, but third parties and boosters who have formed themselves into collectives are able to do that. The, the House case argues that because the NCAA has now permitted NIL, they didn't have a very good defense prior to their permitting it. And that this is a case that is challenging for damages, that period of time uh, where NIL had not been permitted uh, there's a four-year statute of limitations in antitrust cases. So going four years back from when NIL became acceptable to the NCAA, there's a claim for damages that it should have been acceptable four years earlier. That's the argument. A second argument in-house is that the restrictions that the NCAA placed on NIL payments even after it became acceptable, such as that the universities themselves could not make those, those payments, and that NIL payments, in theory, could not be used as recruiting recruiting devices. The House case is challenging those restrictions as well. And the damages sought in that case are enormous, enormous. I think the single damages that they're seeking are over a billion dollars, which would place the exposure there, if that's right, at over $3 billion for that one case alone. But that's not the only case that's out there. There's the Hubbard case, which is a follow-on to the Alston decision, as 
many of the listeners will not remember or never, <laughs> never focused on. Alston did not say that there had to be pay for play. <clears throat> All Alston said was that if a payment is related to education, then the NCAA cannot stop it because a payment related to education would not be confused with a professional athlete's salary. And, and through a complicated set of formulas of the district court in Alston, and it was upheld through the Supreme Court, came up with the figure of something like $5,900 per student per year could be given as an academic incentive payment in some way related to education. And so the Hubbard case is now seeking damages for those students that didn't get uh, the academic payment in the four years prior to uh, it being uh, allowed by the decision in Alston. That case is probably worth uh, damages being sought there are several hundred millions of dollars. So uh, Jeff, on that one, before yeah. we go to the to the next one, that 5980 number is tied to the amount that's allowed for athletic awards. And the court said, if, if you're allowing it for that, at that amount, then how can allowing 5980 for academic awards destroy amateurism? And yes. as, I, as I recall it, Judge Wilkins said, if that athletic award number goes up, then the academic award number also goes up because it's basically saying, look, if you're allowing it for the athletic awards, you have to allow it for the academic awards. And the NCAA has recently announced that they may allow that number to go up significantly. And also in, in Charlie Baker's proposal, he said we would allow unlimited amounts of education payments. So can that, that Hubbard class, can they argue, we know it was 5980 just based on the Alston decision, but that 5980 itself was based on a separate antitrust violation because if they hadn't restricted athletic awards, the Alston payments would be even higher. So is, is it possible? And now, particularly with the NCAA saying you can pay more if you want to, or do you think they're limited to that, uh, um, that 5980 number? I, I understand, Gabe, the argument you're making, and I that's certainly available. Plaintiff's lawyers are very creative and, and they will no doubt try to make that argument. I'm not sure it works very well. I don't know that the the act the athletic achievement awards were being challenged as antitrust violations. And it is right. certainly true that Judge Wilkin looked to those um athletic performance awards and saying if you if you're willing to to make payments at that level for athletic performance, then of course you should be willing uh to, to make it for uh, a payment that's at least arguably related to education. Uh, I don't know um, how far uh, Hubbard can push that that argument, but even if it's limited to the $5,980 $5, per year per student that was not paid in the four years prior to its being permitted, right. uh, that's still several hundred millions of dollars. So it's a very serious case, right. whatever arguments end up being successful right. or not right. successful. Okay. And then the one other big one that I interrupted you before you got to the we're talking about the, the Carter case. Yeah, Carter is in many ways, Carter is a replay of Alston, but with a different set of, of facts. Now, Alston was a frontal challenge to all of the pay for play limitations. The way that case came out was that Judge Wilkin accepted the distinction between professional and collegiate sports and said that if payments were made to athletes simply for their athletic performance, that would blur the distinction. 
between professional and collegiate sports, and the NCAA could prohibit those, but it couldn't prohibit payments that were related to um, education. And now that you do have the NCAA itself proposing that there be pay for play at the highest levels, that's what the Carter case is saying. Now, the argument that there is some distinction at the highest level between professional sports and collegiate sports has become so attenuated that that defense is no longer available. That case has just got started, so hard to say exactly where it's going, but it really is simply the Alston argument again, but with this new set of facts that, that we now have NIL payments and the NCAA itself has proposed a form of pay for play at the highest levels. And those damages conceivably could be even larger than the house case, right? The, if it's, you're talking about any payment, which I, I, I don't know how that would work if it's excluding NIL, but if it's, if it's the non-NIL payment, then we're, we're, again, we could be talking about certainly several, several hundred million, if not multiple billion dollars. There would be a lot of legal skirmishing in there before you got anywhere near that argument. Yep. I think that because you're talking about pay for play, because if each athlete were free to negotiate his or her payment, there might be a different result, which would make it perhaps hard for a court to find a class uh, to, to, to allow Carter to proceed as a class action. So there's a there's an awful long way to go on the legal yep. front there before anybody should be speculating what the damages might be. Right. So the two things. One, as you noted, when we were talking earlier, the NCAA has been facing nonstop antitrust litigation, multiple cases since 2008. So we're now on on year 16. Of As most people know, antitrust litigation is not inexpensive. Put aside whatever damages might be awarded, even if you settle the case or even if you win the case, it's expensive to litigate these cases. Practically speaking, given that there are multiple billions of dollars in damages at play here, right? even, even if we say you know, Carter's too far out in the future to predict how much it might be, but if we just focus on House, and if it's a if it's a 1.4 billion, which the plaintiffs have said is actually probably on the low end, but even if we call it 2 billion, and then you treble it to six, and then you take the Hubbard case and several hundred million to treble that, practically... How does this play out for the NCAA and the schools and the conferences that are that are facing these damages if they lose these cases? Practically speaking, those numbers would be, um, my belief is, those numbers would be well beyond the capacity of the NCAA to, to meet. I, I'm sure, uh, again, I'm not in the middle of this anymore, Gabe, so I, I can't say for certain, but I, I think it's very likely that settlement discussions are going on, uh, but but very likely at a level of of settlement, a level of dollars that would require conferences and the individual schools in those conferences uh, to contribute to the settlement. I don't think that again at, at that level it is at all likely the NCAA itself could could meet those uh, th that kind of damage payment. And if they. But if they, if they can't meet the damage payment, there's a potential room for settlement. One question on on settlement that that people ask uh, pretty frequently is: even if you do settle the house case, and let, let's say you settle the the Carter case, um, can you talk about the mechanism and how it works for the athletes who 
assume the class is certified who opt out of the class that the, the fact that there might still be what additional antitrust exposure might there still be even if they settle these cases because there is such a large number of potential plaintiffs as would happen in any class action this isn't as large as many class actions but can you talk about how that works in terms of potential additional exposure even if there is a settlement a settlement on the damages side i want to talk separately about going forward, because there would probably be an injunctive prospective part of any settlement. But on the backward-looking damages, generally, a class uh, certified for damages, people can opt out and pursue their own uh, damages. So yes, in theory, whatever the settlement uh, amount was agreed to, uh, there could be additional individual cases. Um, There would very likely be um, a, a point at which if enough people opted out, the settlement would collapse. Right. So that would have to be negotiated. But again, right. in theory, uh, any any damages, any class action damages settlement still leaves the possibility of individual claims. And so, and then you mentioned, mentioned the injunctive relief, which I want to come back to in a minute, but it, but it sounds like one path we may be headed to, and I think this is where many people expect it to, to go at this point, is that athletes, at least at the top levels of football and basketball, will be paid to play, or, or the schools will be allowed to pay them to recruit them to come to the school. And how at that point do, do the schools or the conferences or the NCAA, how do they regulate the payment that college athletes are getting in pro sports. We have collective bargaining agreements and mm-hmm. salary caps or luxury taxes and revenue sharing to limit payment that might otherwise be illegal mm-hmm. under antitrust law, but it's immunized by the collective bargaining agreement. We don't have collective bargaining in college sports, at least not yet. So h- how does a system work where the athletes can be paid or the, where the schools might try to limit or want to limit that payment? This is probably the most important prospective issue that there is for the NCAA and for collegiate sports in general. How do you deal with that future now that at least at the highest levels, a professional model seems to be coming into into play and the colleges not having the same tools, the same mechanisms that the professional leagues have. And Collective bargaining, which is commonplace in professional sports, every one of the team sports has had a union for at least 60 years. And although it took the courts a little while to get there, they got there in the mid-1990s, the Supreme Court in, in Brown against the NFL held that if there is a collective bargaining relationship between athletes and their and the owners of, of the teams, all of the what are called mandatory subjects of bargaining. Uh, wages, hours, other terms and conditions of employment, which would, of course, include a salary cap or a luxury tax or restrictions on free agency. All of those topics are now topics to be resolved in labor negotiations in a collective bargaining agreement. And so for many years now, the professional sports have not had to worry about antitrust suits from players over player restraints. They've had to deal with collective bargaining, which itself is not an easy process. And we have seen strikes, we have seen lockouts, and we've also lately seen some agreements. There's almost always an agreement, uh, but it can be a bumpy road to get to an agreement. That's even if you have collective bargaining, but without collective bargaining. And now let's take a look at, at the college situation. There are real obstacles to uh, any collective bargaining taking place 
uh, on a meaningful level uh, in college sports. And there are both legal and practical reasons for that. Let me just start with the legal reasons why it is difficult to have collective bargaining in, in, in all of collegiate sports. There are many, many, many state universities. Some of the, the most important uh, football playing and basketball playing schools are state universities. The students who attend state universities are not subject to federal labor law. They're subject to state law. And, and they wouldn't be part of a collective bargaining relationship with the private schools who would be subject to federal labor law. So you'd have a, an almost impossible dichotomy between state universities and, and private schools. I've heard people suggest that Congress could simply enact legislation and make every student athlete in the country subject to federal labor law. Uh, that's a possibility if you could get such a bill through through Congress. But even if you could, you would then have, I think, a serious state sovereignty issue about whether states can decide how to classify their student athletes as employees or not. So that's that's a long way away. But but let's assume let's assume for the moment that somehow collective bargaining as a legal matter could take hold in college sports. Before before we get to the assuming it can happen. Yeah. The so the general counsel of the NLRB is obviously pushing this joint employer theory that the conferences in the NCAA are joint employers and that yeah. way you get around the public private distinction. Um and I it raises a similar issue though that if the the NLRA is interpreted to apply that broadly then states might have the same argument that they're usurping states rights. But that's certainly a push that the NLR, the current NLRB and the, the the GC are making. And then just one other quibble: when you said that all, I think you said all of the basketball and football powerhouses are state schools. Not all. Okay, I was going to say other than my beloved Duke Blue Devils and their basketball. I, I, no, 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 no. Okay. I, okay. I said some okay. of the most important ones. Okay, not, okay, not okay. all. All right. Yeah, no, just, uh, I didn't want to get all the angry letters. Yeah, no, no. I, I apologize to anybody if I if I gave that misimpression that only state schools play. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, yeah. That is not that is not the case. Okay. I'll accept, uh, Dave. Let me accept the premise that yeah. somehow, some way, all student athletes in the country uh, will be covered by in the same way by federal labor law. I, I think there's a long way to go. Yep. Uh, to yep. get to that, but but yep. let's now talk about the practical issues. Uh, Division one is composed of 350 schools that play basketball. So let's just look at men's basketball. That's roughly 5,000 or more um, basketball players, over 350 schools. In the top level of football, FBS football, you've got 125 schools. That's roughly, it's more than 10,000 football players. A bargaining unit of 350 schools representing 5,000 athletes trying to come to some sort of sensible agreement on the myriad of topics that you would have to talk about in collective bargaining. I can come back to some of those complications beyond a salary cap and beyond limitations on free agency, the length of contracts, guaranteed contracts. Can contracts be traded? Would there be transfer fees? There are enormous issues, but put put all that uh, aside. If you look at the NBA, for example, you've got 30 teams and at any one time about 400, 450 players. And even in that situation, it's very difficult to get agreement. Now, translate that into 350 schools representing 5,000 basketball players, schools that, that the, the 
state universities and the private schools, there are there is such an enormous variety of interests and and resources that would be represented in, in that bargaining unit that it is difficult to see how agreement on almost anything could be reached. But that's what collective bargaining requires you to do. It requires you to sit down and talk and to try to reach agreement. And if you don't reach agreement, then perhaps you still have an antitrust uh, exemption, and perhaps you could unilaterally implement terms and conditions under the labor laws, but you, you face the prospect of strikes, of lockouts, of all of the things that come along with collective bargaining. So it's not only uh, are, there, are there legal questions here, there are, to me, enormously complicated factual and practical questions as to how you get collective bargaining to work in college sports where you're trying to have a level playing field and, and many, 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 many schools trying to compete on that playing field for a national championship. Very difficult. Wait, wait, which sounds like for, for an, a yet another reason, we may be headed towards another division or a split off where you have the 40 schools that are willing to pay the most that are more similar in large state schools that, that are willing to pay that money that, that they break off. And so it's only 40 schools that looks more like the NFL than, which is exactly what the NCAA has <laughs> argued against for the last hundred years is that they're not like the NFL, but now they may just lean into it and say, yeah, at least at that level, we're going to be professional sports attached to these universities. And so the bargaining unit becomes a little clearer where you've got just football players and maybe basketball players, men's and women's, who knows, maybe be three separate unions across that, that new conference, mm -hmm. but it looks three separate professional leagues with three separate professional players associations. Yes, Gabe, all of that's possible. And that may well be, that may well be the future. How those smaller units are going to answer all the questions they're still going to have to answer right. will be very interesting to see. And, and I think, especially at the upper levels, the, the tension that's going to exist between what it costs to, yeah. to run a, a top-level football program or basketball program, yeah, it, it, it's going to just really tax the negotiators here to, to come up with ways of dealing with player contracts, trades, and, and even, even basic eligibility, because with that much money being likely paid to, to athletes, whether the NCAA or the conferences are going to still consider academics important or not is a very serious question. And, and I think they're going to have to deal with, with that concern that as the money becomes larger, the connection between sports and colleges may become a, a weaker connection, much weaker. Right. And then there's a the question of whether they would bargain over, let's say, academic requirements, put aside whether it's a mandatory subject or not, just whether they 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 choose to bargain over that. But but related to that, do you think the if they did away with the the compensation restrictions, but they maintained academic requirements. So you you had to be progressing towards a degree. You had to be a, a full-time student in good standing. Do you think those survive antitrust attack? If somebody wanted to sue and say, why do I have to be a full-time student? Why do I have to have progress towards a degree? Why, why can't I just be a, whatever the argument might be? Do you think the NCAA would still have the ability to maintain at least the academic requirements? There would be a very serious uh, antitrust argument uh, that it could not maintain 
I think, the, the academic requirements, because that would still be a matter of competitors agreeing with each other on limiting how they're going to compete. If, if the schools are saying to each other, you can't, you can't extend eligibility to anybody who doesn't have a 2.5 average, that's a competitor telling a competitor who they can have on their team and not. It has never been challenged. And I think in Alston, it was expressly uh, represented by the uh, plaintiff's lawyers that they were not challenging the agreements on, on academic eligibility. But that's one set of plaintiff's lawyers. Another set of plaintiff's lawyers might, might decide that there, there really is no particular difference between an agreement among competitors to limit competition because of money or because of academic requirements. And if they are eliminating that that argument that pro sports and college sports are somehow different, then it makes it even more difficult to say that they need to be students or they need to be students of a certain level and why individual schools can't make that decision, why they have to make that decision as a as an organization or or what whatever the entity might be, a conference or the NCAA as a whole. Okay, a couple of, couple other questions. Going back to Congress, you mentioned the Unlikely possibility, but still possible that Congress could step in and say, we want to make it clear that all college athletes are employees. Problem with that is, uh, not, in addition to what you mentioned, there may be just as many people in Congress who want to go the other way and make it clear that college athletes are not employees. But put aside that disagreement. And, and on the antitrust front, what the NCAA has asked for, and they've asked for, they've pushed this even more, and this may be partly why uh, Charlie Baker has put his proposal forward uh, as a sort of a chip to get an antitrust exemption from Congress. And, and as he put it, he just wants a little antitrust exemption. But l- talk about two aspects of this. One, whether you think that is something that they might be able to get from Congress. And two, whether there's any chance that that could be used to protect them from the ongoing litigation and minimize some of the damages, or would it only be prospective protection? It is difficult to predict what Congress might or yeah. might not do in any, in any, on any issue. But here, I think that Congress could directly exempt the NCAA and collegiate athletics under certain conditions. They wouldn't have to go the route of collective bargaining and the labor exemption. They simply could adopt an antitrust exemption but I, I think, at least based on everything that's happened so far in the debates that I'm aware of, I think it very likely that Congress, in exchange for an antitrust exemption, would require that universities have to pay a percentage of their television revenues to the athletes. That is the common way that, in the professional leagues, revenue and salaries are related to each other. And that seems to be a well accepted a good idea for any any league of, of, of um, athletic league that you should try to relate your revenue to what you're paying the the athletes. And so because a, a share of television revenues has become, or a share of all revenues in the professional sports has become the way in which uh, you establish the salary cap system, or it's often called the revenue sharing system between the teams and the, and the players, I think something similar would have to be worked out before Congress would grant an antitrust exemption. And that's another area where a disagreement within the schools themselves about what would be an appropriate 
level of sharing of television revenues, I think it'd be very, very difficult to get agreement on that. And if you, if you did, if they somehow could come on, come up with an agreement with that, could, could Congress say that the House case is no longer, has, has to be dismissed or, or can say that NCAA is immune from antitrust law and so the, the courts would dismiss those cases. Can they do that now? Or, or is that practically speaking, or maybe even practically legally speaking, w- would Congress have the power to, with a case sort of midstream, shut it down and eliminate any damages exposure yeah. that they're currently facing? Okay, that, that raises legal issues that I am really not prepared to talk yeah. about. I, I don't. In, in theory, Congress has very broad powers under the Commerce Clause, but and it's certainly not impossible that congressional enactments with retroactive effect could be sustained by the Supreme Court. But I really, we're we're now in such deep and uncharted waters that I want to get out of the water. (laughs) Here, here's a ladder and let's, okay. So one other, maybe two other questions. If Congress doesn't step in, which seems more likely than not that, that they won't, if athletes do not get broadly recognized as employees under the NLRA so that there there is not this widespread collective bargaining, or at least for some period of time, neither of those happens, and college athletes are paid, and whether they're paid directly by the schools or, or some other mechanism. But if there's a pay-for-play system with no ability to limit it through an antitrust exemption or no ability to limit it through collective bargaining... What do you what do you see happening if there's no way to legally restrict the amount of pay, but there's also basically a requirement that they do have to pay? Yeah, that would quickly become a very unsustainable situation for college sports. If there were uh, untrammeled competition, economic competition permitted, it's clear what would happen. The best athletes would be competed over by any number of schools. The amount of dollars being offered to those athletes would get very, very high very, very quickly. And if you add to the unlimited economic competition, the current ability of students to transfer without any waiting period, at, least at the moment, it used to, there was a one-year waiting period that the NCAA relented on that. And, and so you could, you could go through the transfer portal once and you wouldn't have to wait to become eligible. That, that rule is now enjoined. So at this moment, you have, in effect, every athlete, a free agent every year, couple that with unrestricted economic competition for for athletes, either recruits or, or now free agents who have already been in the system. And it is hard to see anything happening other than schools beginning to drop out of that competition. If, if, if they, the school's have again different resources, different tolerance for how much they're willing to to pay for athletics, and but schools that are committed to uh, the highest levels of football and basketball and are committed to winning, trying to win, and they can get the best athletes by paying the most. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear to me what is going to happen, which is why I say that it is not sustainable. It may be sustainable for some period of time for some number of schools, but I think that number of schools would begin to shrink fairly rapidly, given where these costs of of putting on top-level football and and, and top-level basketball uh, could go. 
Right. So let me ask you the, the toothpaste out of the tube question or the horse out of the barn or whatever analogy you want to use. If let's say a group of schools decide, and, and this is unlikely to be the the football powers because they, they have made it clear that they want to continue chasing this revenue. Maybe that changes at some point, but let's say that another group of schools gets together and, let, and let's say it's a, it's a large number. So it's a hundred, 150 schools, whatever it might be. And they say, no, we want to get back to the way college sports used to be in pre-1984, pick whatever date you want, where, where the Supreme Court was willing to accept the amateurism defense. And most courts were willing to accept the amateurism defense and see it as distinct from pro sports. If schools said, we want to do that again, and they say, we're going to limit spending on coaches, which of course might be its own antitrust issue. We're going to make it clear that we are committed to academics, that we are going to show the courts, Congress, the NLRB, everybody that we are in fact different from pro sports. And our focus is on education. And our focus is on having a different product than the professional leagues do. Do you think that schools, put aside whether they have the will to do that and whether too many of them just want to play in the in the bigger fish, the bigger pond, the bigger pool, whatever the expression is. But let's say they, they do have the will to do that. Do you think they could if they make enough changes, do you think they could survive an antitrust attack under sort of a a renewed, resuscitated, revived amateurism defense? I think it would be very difficult now in the short term to do that. I think the antitrust arguments that appear to be prevailing would work even against a, a smaller number of schools that were committed to a, a non-professional model. But but never say never. Remember, the, the NCAA itself was created at a time when collegiate sports was completely professionalized, when all of the schools were paying ringers to come and, and, and play for their team. And it was it was the reaction to that, to the 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 unseemliness of it and also the danger of it, because there are a lot of college athletes getting killed and they're playing against these professionals and there were no particular rules. And so back in whatever it was, 1905, when Theodore Roosevelt called this conference at the uh, White House to see what they could do about college sports, out of that was born the idea of college athletes would not get paid and they would they would be amateurs. And things change. Uh, and I, uh, I, I don't know that it's at all impossible for a, uh, you know, a more complete amateur collegiate model to emerge again. But in in the current uh, environment, I, I think it would be very difficult. Yeah. Okay. Now, last sort of question, comment. You talked about the the challenges with having collective bargaining and and logistics and and all, just all the the practical legal obstacles. But tell me if you you agree with me here. If I'm college athletes, I would think that most of them would say, "Why do we want to be in a union? If our best bet right now is to continue these antitrust suits. And they seem to be gaining steam. They seem to be having more and more success, more prospects of success. And the NCAA maybe with their new proposal, hurting their amateurism and their their antitrust arguments. Why would athletes at this point, at least at the football and basketball level, we we talk about whether at the the lower levels, it may make sense. But for the same reason that NFL players 
dissolve their union or tried to dissolve their union so they would have access to antitrust law. And MLS players decided to try bringing the antitrust suit before they unionized. Are college athletes better off, at least for now, not being in a union and having access to antitrust law instead of having access to labor law? Uh, I certainly understand that argument. I have confronted it many times by by athletes. But I think it goes back to what I was saying about if there is unrestricted competition and there is inevitably a retrenchment and fewer and fewer schools can can compete, then fewer and fewer athletes are going to have opportunities to play college sports at, at a high level. I think that at the very top level, the star, star athletes probably don't ever need a union anywhere. They're going to be okay on their own. But there are a lot of players in the NFL and in the NBA and in Major League Baseball and National Hockey League who very much want the union because it's important for them to bargain collectively and, and through that get not only high minimum salaries, a very good percentage of revenue sharing, and there's an awful lot that can be achieved in collective bargaining. Does it serve the interest of a very few for there to be unrestrained competition? It probably does in the short run. In the long run, there'll be many, many more opportunities for athletes. If there is a regulated system, which is fair to the athletes, but also does not make it impossible for schools to continue to invest in athletics when if the cost is just going to be as high as it could easily become if there are no reasonable restraints in place. Thank you, Jeff. That that's I wish we had something to talk about. Uh, I just wish there was some some stuff going on in this antitrust college sports landscape. But I can't thank you enough for walking mm-hmm. through these really complicated, difficult issues. And as you said, we are in uncharted waters in a lot of ways. And it's difficult to see how this all shakes out. But I appreciate all of your insight into these issues. And once we have another development, which will probably be this afternoon, um, but whenever it is, love to have you back on to talk us through all of that and and just appreciate everything you've done for this field and and for so many in the sports law industry. You are are a a titan and a pioneer and a legend. So I I always appreciate getting a chance to talk to you and to be able to share your views with the audience. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to come back and uh, thanks for having me. And we'll, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. You too. Thank you for listening. And thanks as always to my loyal sponsor, the Tulane Center for Sport. If you enjoyed what you heard today, or even if you didn't enjoy, please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends. See you next time on SportsWise.